we're talking seconds here too. I mean, we can be zero on the down stops doing, you know, 180 to 200 knots within less than 10 seconds, I would say, because we can move the nacelles max rate at eight degrees per second. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we get to travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. Also, subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. Big shout out this week to the folks on Reddit in the helicopter subreddit for giving the show a plug. And if you're joining us for the first time today, look, a really big welcome. And I hope you enjoy not only this episode, but also all the past ones if you go back through and check those out. So this episode is sponsored by trainmorepilots.com. If you need help with your marketing, your aviation business, then definitely check that out, trainmorepilots.com. Another quick announcement just before we get stuck in, the World Helicopter Day website is now up and running at worldhelicopterday.com. So make sure you pencil in the 16th of August this year. The goal will be to hold a network of open days around the globe to celebrate helicopters and highlight the roles that our industry plays in our communities. So that's over at worldhelicopterday.com. Okay, today we get to hear about you know one of my favorite aircraft, the, the V-22 Osprey tilt rotor. These things look like an absolute beast and I reckon it must be a hoot to operate. So Mike McKinney is a retired USAF Lieutenant Colonel and a Special Operations Helicopter Pilot. He flew the UH-1Ns and then the MH-53Js and Ms uh, Pavlo helicopters. So it's the Air Force version. And it was one of the first instructors on the V-22 Osprey. As such, Mike was part of the test and evaluation phase and standing up the actual operational capability and writing the procedures and the, the training uh, background for it. So he's now now flies as a civilian maintenance test pilot on the Osprey and conducts post-maintenance and operational check flights. So a pretty good source to find out a bit more about it. And Mike gives us a rundown on the Osprey and an idea of what it's like to operate. All right, folks, we've got uh, Mike McKinley uh, here on the uh, line with us today. So, Mike, thanks very much for being uh, available. And, uh, yeah, great to have you on the show. Thanks. It's nice to be here. Look, we're going to talk about a heap of different things, but, um, you know, mainly it's going to be about the, the Osprey because it's just a, an incredible machine and I'm looking forward to this one. We've been trading emails. But, Mike, you've got a, you know, a pretty comprehensive career behind you as well. So can you let us know how you got started with uh, helicopters? Well, I just, uh, while I was in college, uh, you know, I always wanted to be a pilot. And while I was in college, uh, just got a little more interested in uh, helicopters and uh, in the Air Force, uh, at least our Air Force, the helicopter world is pretty small. So it was kind of actually hard to find things out about helicopters. But I, luckily, the uh, commander of my ROTC detachment in college was a former helicopter pilot and uh, gained some information and insight from him and decided that's what I wanted to do. And I kind of never looked back. I took my first flight in a, in a helicopter uh in the late 1980s, and uh, I'd already been a private pilot, uh, fixed one for a while. Took my first helicopter ride, and I kind of was hooked, and uh, the rest is kind of history. So it was your first ride in the Air Force, or you did that um, outside? 
Yeah, I did it civilian. Actually, it was a Bell 47. Just uh, went over to uh, found a, a local Bell 47 guy. had a 47 at the instruction and took a uh, kind of one lesson, just about an hour, hour and a half or whatever. And, uh, yeah, kind of got hooked from there and said, hey, that's what I want to do. So. All right, tell us about the uh, the US Air Force uh, helicopter fleet because you know normally the coverage you hear is obviously the Army uh, machines and things like that, and I, I kind of guess the impression I've taken away is it's uh, very much a CSAR role, so it's sort of uh, rescuing downed um, you know jet aircrew and things like that. Is that kind of the the role, or what sort of roles would you cover? Well, there's kind of uh, I would say overall probably four roles that the Air Force uh, helicopter uh, community does. Uh, first one would be uh, missile site support. So it's um, all done by UH-1N Hueys, so twin-engine Hueys. They've been around. They're doing this for many years, and that's where I started out in. And they uh, they operate out of the various uh, bases that have uh, ICBM nuclear missiles, and they help provide the, with the security of those missile sites and that. So they do a lot of flying of not only the missile crews back and forth, but a lot of the security forces and stuff to guard the sites and stuff. That's a pretty big role. Uh, it was a lot. It was bigger when I came in the Air Force. They sh- shut a few bases down that used to do that. What they also do um, secondary is some VIP support uh, out of Andrews Air Force Base. So they fly a lot of government dignitaries around the Washington D.C. area. Uh, that's a fairly large squadron called the First Helicopter Squadron there, and they also fly Hueys. But then in the, the last two roles are uh, yeah, yeah CSAR. CSAR is all performed by uh, HH-60 Pave Hawk helicopters, so it's a version of the Black Hawk helicopter. They operate under Air Combat Command, which is a separate major command in the Air Force. And then the last one is what I was in my whole career with Special Operations under the Air Force Special Operations Command. Um, right now, actually, there's no true helicopters left in Air Force Special Operations Command. It's when they retired the MH-53 Pavlo, uh, that was kind of the end of the helicopter role. And the V-22 came in about that same time frame. And even though it's not a direct replacement, it's kind of fulfilled some of that role that the Pavlo did. But it's kind of a mix between the two. So we're still in the – technically, we have a rotary wing aircraft in special operations in the Air Force side, at least. All right. So what would be the biggest difference, I guess, you know, doing special ops on the Air Force side to the Army, that's the, uh, you know, the 160th or the, the Night Stalkers? Uh, what's the sort of the divisional roles there? Well, we actually, in the, in the MH-53 role, we were the same. I mean, if you want to say we were direct competitors in some regards, because we did the very, very same missions, operated with the same customers. The 53 was purely a, uh, you know, a carrier of people and equipment, uh, cargo role, whereas the 160 has a little bit of everything with it from attack and, you know, different size aircraft and stuff. But uh, at one time, the Air Force Special Operations, we had H-60s. We had one squadron H-60s. They went away in the late 90s. So we were the 53, though, had been in Air Force Special Operations since the 1980s. And, uh, you know, participated in everything from Panama to Desert Storm on. So uh, when they retired them in 2008, it was really the end of the pure helicopter role in, in the Air Force side. And what parts of the globe did you get to, the deployments or training? Where did you end up with your service? I mostly was in uh, European theater and uh, Middle East type stuff, but we, the 53 was stationed uh, in Korea, uh, then they were stationed in the U.S., and they were stationed in RAF Northern Hall in England. So we were in the, you know, the Asian, the Pacific theater, as well as the European theater, and then the uh, the stateside unit was based out of Herbert Field, Florida, 
Uh, we also have the, the schoolhouse, which is here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So that's been the schoolhouse for rescue all Air Force helicopter pilots since, I, I believe, in late 1970s, early 1980s. All right, well, let's uh, talk about the V-22 then and a bit of the history and, I guess, the uh, you know, stand-up for the role for it. And I just saw an article sure. this week about the, they're talking about the, you know, again, the next sort of replacement helicopters and the fact that, you know, we could have a 100-year-old Chinooks uh, kicking around. So what was the driving force for the V-22 and, and the initial history of it? Overall, the big push for V-22 was trying to make a rotary wing platform uh, that was fast. You know, and really the only thing that V-22 brings to the fight, in all honesty, is speed. But that speed advantage is huge when you're talking about uh, time on the battlefield. And uh, so, you know, the original concept evolved really from the 1950s, the tilt rotor concept, all the way back to the XV-3 days, back when Bell flew the XV-3 in the 50s and 60s. And then they went into the XV-15, and then from there, V-22. So really the concept of tilt rotor and the idea behind it has been around for quite a long time. It just never fully was envisioned until V-22 came about. And, uh, you know, first flight was late 1980s, I believe 1987 of the prototype V-22. And, uh, you know, initially, all the services were very interested in it. I believe even the Army was part of the original concept back in the early 80s. And uh, the Army kind of got out of the game plan there in the 80s at some point. So it was left to the Marines and the Air Force. And, uh, but yeah, it's, that's really the, you know, the whole design behind it. It's an aircraft that can take off and land vertically and operate like a helicopter, do the same thing helicopters can do, yet also go as fast as a turboprop airplane. And when did you first get involved, Mike? Well, I started doing a little bit of like staff type work back in the late 90s and early 2000s. Uh, the Air Force at the time was doing what we called uh, tactics development simulators at Bell Helicopter down in Fort Worth, Texas. And I was a part of that way. I was going down to Fort Worth and flying their, what they called a rapid prototyping sim. And I fly that with a, a full, we have a full crew basically complement, fly the simulator around. And then make, make, we were kind of tweaking uh, the software and some of the ways uh, the aircraft was designed and the cockpit and things of that nature. And, and I wasn't, you know, there was a lot of us that did that. So I was just a small, small part of that. But that's where I really got my first taste of, of the Osprey and what, how it flew and what it could do. And then my next uh, step for the Osprey was when I was selected for the initial cadre to start the schoolhouse out here. And I was selected for that in uh, 2004, but I didn't start flying that until 2005. And what's it like when you, when you first see it in the hangar on the flight line, you walk up to it, like what's the going from a, you know, again, I haven't been up close to a 53, it's a massive machine, but what's the initial impressions of it uh, from a helicopter pilot's point of view? how large the rotors are, the prop rotors. Uh, that's pretty much everybody's initial take on it because the prop rotors that are on, you know, at the end of the end of the wings on themselves, they're, they're 38 feet in diameter and they're, they're quite large. So while, you know, the aircraft looks like an airplane uh, sitting there, you, you see these huge, you know, these huge prop rotors and this huge rotor disc on each end. And it just looks different for most people. So I, I think that's probably the the biggest uh, takeaway you get when you initially see it is how how big those those prop motors really are. All right, if we break it down, Mike, and then and I guess go through each of the systems. Uh, if you give uh, you know a crash tech course on it, and then we might talk sure. about uh, how it flies and things like that. So you, you mentioned the rotor system, and uh-huh. you know there's, there's videos on YouTube, and it's just crazy how the whole thing folds up and things like that. But you know, as you said, it's um, it's a relatively you know heavy aircraft. 
and even as big as the Raiders are, you know, like I say, they're pushing a fair bit of, um, you know, air to, to lift the thing. So, yeah, what, can you talk about the construction? So, obviously, three-bladed. Yep. Is, it, is it a fairly standard helicopter blade, or what's the what's the difference in the actual blade? It is. Well, it's, you know, it's a fairly simple uh, airfoil shape, but uh, it, it's a very highly twisted twisted rotor. It's about 42 degrees of twist from the root to the tip. So it tries to combine, you know, helicopter and, and turboprop airplane prop kind of, kind of, kind of com- tries to combine those together and you create a, a prop rotor system that gives you some efficiency throughout that range. So, uh, you know, it's, it is fairly simple that, you know, the tip design is, is very standard and very conventional. They, they haven't done any, any fancy tip design. They haven't really, you know, it's, just, it's your typical kind of rectangular shaped blade. Uh, the biggest thing, like I said, is that it's twisted uh, very, very highly, which, you know, has its good and bad depending on the mode of flight you're in. The rotor head itself is honestly fairly small for the size of the aircraft. The, the, the whole rotor head is, uh, I mean, you know, probably about the size of a, uh, oh, I'd say like an A-star head maybe, even that size. So there's a, it's all elastomeric bearings. So that's why, you know, there's a, um, the rotor, the head itself, and, and I can explain later on some of the, the way the software works because there's a lot of forces on a fairly small rotor head. So, I'm, you know, to try to give you an example, I mean, it's like having a, uh, an aircraft with a, uh, a Huey size, or it's actually probably a little longer than a Huey size blade, but a rotor head uh, itself, it's about the size of an A-star. So you have a lot of forces going on in that rotor head. Um, the rotor head is designed to fold, so there's a lot of uh, extra components and, and hinges and stuff to allow the blades to actually fold up. Um, it causes, you know, some complexity. It's all also has a lot of anti-ice and de-ice systems running through it, um, so there's a lot of that. But other than that, it's your standard rotor head. Um, it's all other than being all elastomeric uh, bearing. Um, and uh, but other than that, you know, it's, it's it's pretty standard compared to other aircraft out there. You've got regular you know, hydraulic servos and push push uh, push pull tubes and all that kind of stuff up there. It does the same thing for the most part, just like a regular rotor, uh, you know, regular helicopter works. So, is there a feathering hinge and things like that, or is it more a um, sort yep. of a, a flex? Well, it's all it's all done in the elastomeric bearing, but it's basically a stiff and plain rotor system. So it still gives you all the the motions you get in a normal three bladed rotor, just like an A star or anything like that. But it's all done through elastomeric bearing instead of having mechanical hinges. Okay, and the, and the powertrain, and again, you know, just from the the rough stuff I've yep. read, the fact that you have engine failure and the the other engine powers the the other side. Yeah, can you talk about yeah. the, the the gearbox and the, and the powertrain? Yeah, you bet. There's there's uh, in each of the cell. So then the cells are what we call the you know the area on the ends of the wings where you, where everything's housed. Inside there, you have two main gearboxes. The first one is called the prop rotor gearbox, which is in the front which as it sounds, it basically takes uh, power from the engine and to, to turn the prop rotor itself. And it's, it's a very critical component, obviously. And for what it does and for the amount of horsepower that goes through it, it uh, it's fairly small, actually. But it's it's up front, and I, you know, I, I don't know exactly what the uh, reduction gears or what it reduces it to, but it takes 6,000 horsepower. It's a 6,150 horsepower in each engine and then turns the prop rotor at about 380 RPM. So it's a, it's a critical component. It's a really key component. It's just like the equivalent of a main transmission in a helicopter, and there's one on each side. And then in the rear of the nacelle is what's called the uh, tilt axis gearbox, and that's actually where the, 
where the whole nacelle tilts from. So you have the gears back there that allow the nacelle to go up and down. And uh, you also that the tilt axis gearbox is where the the accessory components are. So our hydraulic pump, our generators, and stuff like that are all located back there in the tilt axis gearbox. Uh, and that's pretty much what's all in the nacelle the area there. You have a drive shaft that runs in the aft portion of the wing from one side to the other. Uh, the other the third gearbox in the, in the whole solution is right is on the top of the wing, and that's called the mid-wing gearbox. In there, you also have you have your APU, uh, you have another hydraulic pump, you have another generator. But the main thing that that does is it synchronizes that drive shaft. So if you can think of it as having a tail rotor drive shaft running along the aft inside each wing, and what that allows it to do is, is if you lose one engine on one side, the remaining good engine on the other side can, through that drive shaft, turns the prop rotor gearbox and the prop rotor on the other side. So that's what gives us single engine capability. And it looks just like a tail rotor drive shaft on a helicopter. You know, we've got hanger bearings and everything else that, that run through it. It's the same thing, but it goes through that mid-wing gearbox and uh, turns the mid-wing gearbox as well and, and for our accessory power and stuff. Yeah, that um, must, and that's pretty well, much it. I was going to say, it must put a fair bit of, uh, probably a lot more power through that than you get through your average uh, tail rotor drive. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, probably because, you know, it turns, again, you get 6,000 horsepower on each engine. So you have, you know, the, the engines are very powerful for what, for the size. They're actually for small engines. I'd say they're only maybe six, seven feet long to produce that kind of horsepower. So it's uh, very powerful. But, you know, the aircraft kind of needs all that power, too. Um, because, you know, the, the, the uniqueness of tilt rotor uh, aerodynamics and stuff cause it to uh, really have to use a lot of available power. So We'll talk about the folding up um, later on, but that, that central gearbox you're talking about in the middle of the wing, is that connected to how the wing spins on top of the fuselage or is that a more a hydraulic type thing? Yeah, it's strictly a hydraulic system. And it's there's a, a gimbal ring that's mounted in the uh, actual fuselage itself. And then the wing itself just spins on that gimbal ring, and it's all done automatically. We have it's an automatic blade fold wing stow system, and we select what uh, position we either want. We can just fold the blades and bring the cells down, and we can fold the entire wing up, or it, it just depends on what they want to do with the aircraft. And it's really a press of a button. It's a couple of buttons on the uh, on the CDUs or the uh, MFDs up front, and then we press one main button and engages the whole system, and it goes through its process and. Within 90 seconds, it will fold the. Uh, it can fold the entire wing and everything up in 90 seconds. So it's pretty uh, pretty neat system. Works pretty well. There are once in a while you get some, you know, some issues here and there. Certain lock pins don't go into that, but uh, it seems to work uh, work fairly well. But it all pivots the entire wing on that, and and it's one big. It's, it's so the aircraft is kind of like two separate units. You have the wing, and then you have the fuselage, and, the, and it's mounted on top of it. I mean, the wing is mounted on top of the fuselage on that ring, that gimbal ring. Yeah, it's a crazy amount of engineering in there. Um, the Hydraulic-wise, so one on each, one on each um, engine cell, and then the, uh, I guess, a backup or a, a third inside the, the central wing. Yep. Yep, we have three hydraulic systems. And, that, and that's the key, one of the key components with the aircraft is almost everything in the aircraft is triply redundant. Uh, it only needs one to operate it, but we have three. So like the hydraulics, any one of those three hydraulic systems can power the flight control hydraulics, but it, it only needs one to operate. Uh, we actually have four generators. It only needs one generator to power systems, but it has, you know, has that. We have three flight control computers. So 
everything has a that is critical is triply redundant, and uh, which gives us a heck of a lot of backup capability. You can lose one, we can lose two systems essentially of those three and still fly. All right, I understand. So, start thing you'd start APU and then uh, one engine and then the second engine. Yeah, we start APU and that gives us uh, our what we call hydraulic free pressure initially because that hydraulic free pump is in that middling gearbox. And what it does initially is actually pressurizes the hydraulics one and two because hydraulics one and two are only designed to do uh, flight controls. But uh, during startup, uh, hide three actually powers those during the initial startup until the rotors get up to a certain RPM. So yeah, then we start, uh, we can either start, you know, we start the left engine first. We started, we always started obviously in vertical. Start the uh, left engine and start the right engine. It's all theta controlled. So it's a very, it's a fairly modern uh, process of starting engines. You know, you just go to start, let the, let the system go through the FedEx scheduling, um, and then you know, push it up to fly. So that's one of the two positions we have on our control levers. All right. So in, in the cockpit, then, if you're sitting in the seat coming from a helicopter, you know, what are the what are the actual controls, and, and where are they? Uh, I guess it's it's a glass cockpit, but you know, you know, do you have a cyclic? Do you have pedals? Do you you know the throttles on the roof? What's the arrangement there? Right. We. I actually call it a control stick instead of a cyclic simply because, you know, it, because you're going between two different modes of flight. So we just settle with control sticks, but it's, you know, same thing. So it's, a, it's a, a cyclic stick for what, for all intent and purposes. Um, yeah, we have rudder pedals, same thing. They control not only the rudders, but they also control the differential thrust in the prop rudder system to give us yaw capability in a, in a hover. Uh, and then we have what the, the difference, the big difference is called a TCL or thrust control lever. And that's our left hand. So if you think of that HOTAS concept where hands on throttle and stick, you know, your right hand's on the control stick, your left hand's on the TCL. The TCL is, it moves just like a throttle. So it's a four and a half movement. But, uh, you know, people in the helicopter world, you think, you know, wow, that's going to be a negative habit transfer, but it actually works out great. It doesn't take any time at all to get used to it. And when you think about what you're doing, you're controlling the thrust vector you kind of get it. So you're controlling the thrust vector, whether you're in helicopter mode or whether you're flying like an airplane, all you're doing with that is controlling that thrust vector. The, the one uniqueness to it is, is right under your left thumb is a little knurled knob that you control, and that's how you control the nacelle movement. So we can control the nacelles, you know, one, in one degree increments if we want to. We, we tend to have a certain, a certain range and a certain profile that we, you fly, but uh, we actually control the nacelles just by that left thumb and it's spring loaded, so you go, you, you know, aft or forward, and and it, it'll return to its neutral position. Um, and then you know, on the display itself, you have a nacelle angle position indicator, so you can determine where it's at. Other than that, it's uh, you know fairly standard. The it's all through the flight control computers, and everything is kind of phased in. You don't even know it's happening necessarily. So whether you're flying a helicopter or an airplane, uh, you don't have to do anything different. You just you maneuver the controls just like you would whether you're flying either type of aircraft and the flight control computers allow the flight controls, you know, depending on where the nacelles are and stuff like that, they use that information and they either feed in flapper on or they feed in uh, cyclic action on the rotor system. It all depends on what mode of flight you're in. All right, so talk about flapper on then. So that would be, you know, essentially an aileron in a fixed wing or is it, a, is it actually yeah. double up as flaps? Exactly. It's, it's both. And there's two on each wing. Uh, they're fairly large and uh, full span, so they run all the way from the cell all the way to the root of the, of the wing root itself. And they, once again, they're all automatic for the most part. We can control them manually, but it, it's extremely rare to do it. There's no, no real reason to. So uh, we have a, 
you know, basically a flap lever that we keep in auto almost all the time. And it's based upon an airspeed schedule. So depending on what airspeed you're at, it depends on whether they go down or come up. So when you're flying, it's basically about 45 degrees is where it, uh, it either below that nacelle angle or above it is whether you're flying purely as an airplane or purely as a helicopter. So as you get farther back in the nacelle angle, above back behind 45, so 60, 70, 80 degrees, where it's almost vertical, almost the flaperons pretty much go straight down so that you don't get a lot of downwash on the on the wing and the flaperons themselves trying to take away. And they're, they're not effective, so you're flying just like a helicopter at that point. So everything's cyclic and collective type motions. Uh, whereas below 45, it starts phasing in the flaperons more, so they start coming up and they start acting more like ailerons. And then when you're fully down at uh, at zero on cells, you're you're flying just totally like a like an airplane at that point in time. So the flaperons are just strictly ailerons at that point, and everything else reverts over to the to the same you know to uh, to basically airplane type flying capabilities. Well, yeah, that um, flux drones are crazy. I'm just trying to picture the uh, you know, your pedals as you accelerate from a hover into forward flight. It's going to be doing the, um, I guess, the blades initially, and then transitioning into right. the uh, in the tail fins. Yep, that's exactly. It. It, it provides, you know, depending on, on the, your speeds, the the pedals either give you differential collective, or they also give a little rotor tilt. So you can see in a hover sometimes you'll see the if you're making a t- pedal turn, one rotor. It's kind of like an H47 in some ways. One rotor will tilt forward, one will tilt aft, and it allows the nose to turn. But it's also controlling a little differential uh, collective in that too. So it's putting a little thrust on one side. That's how it does for a a roll in a hover in a helicopter mode. So it gives you a little bit of uh, thrust on one side or the other to allow the aircraft to roll one way or the other. Um, Yeah, and it's all, again, it's all done totally automatic. You don't really even even know it as a pilot. You just, you you kind of feel the aircraft make changes, but you don't, it's nothing dramatic. Um, The one thing that's a little unique is, so in helicopter mode, you fly, totally zero nose of the horizon. Uh, whereas when you transition forward, the aircraft actually flies in airplane mode about five to seven degrees nose high. And the reason for that is there's no angle of incidence in the wing. So you have to counteract that by having a little nose high attitude to give you some angle of attack on the wing as you're, or else you'll just continue, you know, you'll just be in the constant descent. So as you're transitioning forward, you actually bring, as, as you go, you know, as you accelerate and, and, the, and the cells start coming down, you're actually bringing the nose up a little bit and you end up about five to seven degrees nose high as you're flying, uh, you know, as you're, as you're cruising in airplane mode. And you do just the opposite coming back in as you decelerate and start bringing the cells back. You actually bring the nose from that five degrees down to, to level once you're in full helicopter mode. Yeah, interesting. And when, you, when you're transitioning forward and you're using your, your left thumb there to lower the angle on the uh, engine nacelles, is it, I guess you're looking at the front and just flying visually. So you're using the control stick to sort of free controlling your attitude and you're just going to, to known positions on the on the engine tilt or are you kind of physically actually using all of them in a coordination fashion to actually fly it? Or is it like a, the, the angle of the the engines, are you kind of just right. using known positions for that or is it it's all sort of hands and feet? We, you know, we kind of have, yeah, it's, it's, it's a little bit of everything, you know, with the rudders, you know, with the pedals themselves, uh, you have heading hold and then you have coordinated turn built into the system. So it, you can fly like an airplane mode, you fly with the feet on the floor. You can really kind of do that in helicopter mode as well, just depending on how much wind you have. If you're, if it's a calm day, you can, 
you can take your feet off the pedals and put them on the floor and it'll, it'll hold the whatever heading you want. But yeah, what you're doing is you're accelerating. I just kind of have rules of thumb. So uh, one of the rules of thumbs that, that, that I use is when I, I don't go below 30 degrees. Like when you're initially accelerating out, you're not supposed to go below 75 in the cell until you get 40 knots. At 40 knots, the wing becomes effective. Um, so you, you wait till about 40 knots, and that only takes, and I'm, I'm talking two seconds, three seconds, it accelerates that fast. So about 40 knots, then you're cleared down to 60 in the cell. Um, it, it's, a, it's kind of a personal rule of thumb of mine. I don't go below, go below 60 in the cell until I uh, have my gear up because I have a 140-knot gear limitation speed. So at 160 knots, it, it, uh, I'm trying to remember how to explain this to you. The, there's a relationship between the cell angle and airspeed as long as your nose is on the horizon. So if your nose is on the horizon and you're at 60 in the cell, you're going to be right about 100 to 110 knots cast, which are indicated for lack of, you know, like we use cast, but it's basically indicated in the aircraft. Um, so that's what it's going to come out to be, about 100 to 110 knots. So that's why for, for me, I use a 60 in a cell kind of clue in my head that once I get to 60 in a cell, I bring the gear up. Once the gear is up, then I'm, I can transition all the way down to, uh, to zeros. Uh, another rule of thumb that I use is a 30 nacelle, 130 knots. It's just something is, again, there's no true limitation. I just don't go below 30 nacelle until I got 130 knots. And, you know, you're talking, we're talking seconds here, too. I mean, we can be zero on the down stops doing, you know, 180 to 200 knots within less than 10 seconds, I would say, because we can move the nacelles max rate at eight degrees per second. So if I push that or roll that uh, thumb wheel forward till it stops, it, it'll move them at eight degrees per second. Um, and you can use that. You usually don't you kind of do about what we call half rate. So anywhere between about four to six degrees per second um, and accelerates pretty quick. So it's uh, yeah, it's pretty fast transition. Um, and it, it can be really fast if you want it to be. And it's really kind of a seat of the pants feeling too. You're trying to transition if you want to do a level level deceler or level acceleration to get out of town fast. Say say at 100 feet or 200 feet, uh, you just accelerate and keep in your you're kind of you know feeling the aircraft settle as you bring the nose up a little bit. So it's just like doing a level acceleration in a helicopter where you kind of you know you don't want the aircraft to descend as it goes through translift and this that and the other you know. So you uh, same kind of feeling. Oh, sounds like fun. <laughs> I'd love to give it a shot. What's the angle where the um, the blade tips start actually going below the, the fuselage? Uh, 45 degrees. Okay. And uh, so we actually, it's actually electrically, it, um, there's certain things that lock it out from going below 45. And one of those is our uh, our door, our cabin door on the right side has an electric lock that if we're rolling ourselves forward and that door isn't locked properly. There's a micro switch in there which will, which will stop in the cells at 45 degrees uh, until that gets, uh, gets locked. Um, so next, it, that's primarily a, a, a feature of if somebody had that door open was standing there, kind of, I, you know, I'm not really sure exactly why they, why they have it there, but um, that's always, uh, it rarely comes into play, but every once in a while that door might pop a jar or something like that. And uh, you'll, you can't roll in the cells past 45 degrees, but, that's, that's the only thing that really stops us from doing that. No, it's not, I don't I can't remember what aircraft is, but we've heard that on the inside you have like the, the red line in, in line with the, the uh, propellers, and that's the uh, the seat you tell folks here. You don't want to sit in that seat because that's where the uh, propellers will come through when they let go. So I don't know if you have something. <laughs> yeah, we have that line on the outside um, of the aircraft because the, the, 
the blades, when they're in airplane mode, are only 11 inches from the cabin. And they're right there by that, that right door, you know. So for some reason, you could, uh, you could open that door in airplane mode. Yeah, it would be, uh, I think it'd be a pretty scary sight because it'd be right there in your face. Actually, that's um, interesting. But, to, um, what's, what's the uh, cabin noise like then in that case? Uh, you know, the, the, the noise is actually pretty high in the cabin. Uh, it's one of the things that the, uh, especially in the Air Force side, a lot of our, our flight physiologists and stuff have looked at is the noise level. The cockpit is pretty quiet. And I think my, my take on that is because we're ahead of the rotor disc sitting in the cockpit, so we don't hear the sound. Um, but behind in the cabin, it's actually pretty loud. And uh, that is, you know, kind of raised some concerns amongst the Air Force physiology side and stuff. You know, we just got to make sure we're wearing all the proper uh, you know, either foamies or we use a CEP systems in our helmets. So just make sure you're wearing that kind of stuff so that you don't have long-term hearing issues. But I, I don't think it's any different than, I don't notice really myself any different than what I flew in 53s or, or even H60s or anything. I mean, it's about the same, but it's still, it's louder than a turboprop airplane, let's put it that way. In the back, is it normally a, a two uh, aircrewman sort of uh, complement in the back or? or? Yeah, for the Air Force it is, and I believe the Marines are still flying that with two crew chiefs. We have two flight engineers, so one flight engineer is in the center seat between the two pilots, and then the, the uh, our second flight engineer's primary responsibility is the, is the tail, the ramp, because we, especially low level, we fly with the ramp down so he can scan for threats, so he would be back there, and then obviously we would have a, in combat, we'd have a gun on the tail, and he would be responsible for the gun, and then his job is the, the guy in the back, his job is to uh, take care of the troops, you know, any team members we have on board or any vehicles that might be in there. He's the primary guy in charge of that stuff. And they just, they rotate back and forth depending on, you know, what they what they want to do that day. So they're both trained to the same standard. All right, I've got a heap of questions here too. I'll come back to training, but if we just talk about, um, I guess, roll equipment and what you can actually carry as far as um, cargo and things go. So how many, if you're actually putting people in seats, how many seats are in the, in the back mm-hmm. for a, a cargo load? Yeah, there's 24, and they're crash-worthy seats. You know, we we in the Air Force have kind of gotten away from we've taken the seats out and just do what we call kind of alternate cargo loading, where we just they would sit on the on the ground and or sit on excuse me, not the ground, but sit on the floor of the aircraft and be strapped in uh, with the a, a tension system, and that allows us to put more more troops back there. Basically, um, the problem with the aircraft for people while or really everything. I won't say problem, but the big thing is we run out of space before we run out of weight. It essentially is the same cabin size as a, as a H-46, uh, but we have weight that we can still use. So we run out of, we cube out before we wait out. Yeah, um, sure. We can carry some smaller vehicles. We can carry, you know, cargo pallets, stuff like that. Um, it has a roller system in it, just like a, uh, you know, just like a 46 or 47 or anything. So, it has those capabilities. It has uh, flippers on the ramp, so vehicles can roll on and roll off. Um, it obviously can't take, you know, very large vehicles, but if they've uh, adapted a lot of smaller vehicles now, they can uh, they can fit in the back and, and go that route. Um, so, but uh, yeah, so like I said, it's designed for 24 with the seats, but we tend to try to pack as many guys in there as we can, as long as we have the weight. And fast roping and a hoist and things like that. Can you fast rope out um, all three doors, or it's just out the back? No, just out the top of ramp. Um, I, you know, they, they were initially going to try to fast rope out the right door. It only has a, a ramp and a right door. It doesn't have a left door. They were going to try doing it out the, the right door, but and they're also going to try to do the hoist out of there. But the down launch, you're right underneath the rotor disc. Uh, it's just not really a, a good place to do it. So the ramp became 
where everything really occurs. So the, the, the hoist itself is an electric hoist, and it actually is mounted in the upper door assembly. Um, so it's up above that. And then the fast, also with a fast rope point, is actually out there as well. And uh, so you can fast rope off the tail. Uh, I think the Marines initially tried fast roping out that, through the hell hole. I don't know if they're still doing that or not. But, uh, you know, that, out the hell hole is never never something in the Air Force side that we ever really fast roped out. Used, even in the 53, we didn't use the hell hole. I know I think the Marines do it in the 53 Echo a lot. Uh, but it's just hard getting troops out the, through the hell hole with any packs on or anything. Um, so, yeah, pretty much everything's off the ramp, which isn't as big of a deal as initially think because it's a little bit shorter than like the 53. It's, it's not as long. So it's not as big of a distance uh, than when you were fast roping off the 53 and the tail. Was, you, were, you know, those guys were a long way back there. And if you had to do any movements in the aircraft, it was it was kind of fun to be able to do that and not kick guys off the rope. So. And I'm just thinking, uh, I guess, combat scenario is self-protection. So if you've got your, um, your gun on the back ramp and folks are uh, roping out, uh, there's no other gun point for um, self-protection, is there? No, there isn't. Uh, that's one of the things that's being looked at by Air Force Special Ops Command, and I believe even the Marines are still. Uh, there's been a lot of discussions and um, different uh, R&D on various self-defense platforms. Um, same thing, if, you know, with the right door, again, even even just opening that door in a hover, it's kind of like opening the door in a hurricane because you're directly in the downwash of the rotor system. So it's it would be extremely difficult to try to put a gun there. We'll be able to, an effective gun, let's put it that way, something that you can effectively aim because the downwash is so intense right there. Um, they did come up with what was called the IDWS, Interim Defensive Weapon System, which was mounted in the hell holes um, and with a gal, you know, a gal in there that uh, the, the Air Force, we did the tests on it and didn't really like it. So we kind of got rid of the concept where the Marines have deployed it. Uh, I'm not sure how effective it's been for them and if, if they're even still using it, but, you know, it basically folded back up and there's two hell holes. So it folded up into it and, with, and it came back, came down in a hover, you know, so you could use it that way and was targeted with kind of a, almost like a PlayStation targeting system with a handheld thing with a flight engineer could use. So it was uh, a quick, rapid development project that never really came to the best fruition, unfortunately. Uh, I think it has has the capability there, though. I think that that, that concept of mounting something out of the hellhole is still valid because uh, we in the Air Force, we don't really use the hooks at all, cargo hooks. We just don't do external loads. So, we, uh, you know, it's a great opportunity to put something in there to some sort of turreted weapon or something like that, but um, I'm kind of out of that game of uh, studying that anymore. Yeah, fair enough. And that's what I was going to go next. Was I imagine the Marines do a, a heap of external load using the hooks um, uh, for the ship. So is there what, one hook, two hooks? And, and I guess that's what the hell holes are there for too, for the hookup? Yep, two hooks, uh, just like your typical, like an H-47 or anything, same capabilities. Um, so like I said, we just don't use it uh, at all. We tried initially when we started flying it. We went out and did swing load stuff, but the Air Force has just never, we've never had a reason to do external loads, and uh, it's not really practical for us to do it, so like uh, here in Albuquerque, I believe we've taken the hooks off of all the aircraft, so it's just there's empty hell holes in there. I'm not sure if the operational units are doing that or not, but uh, it's kind of a weight-saving measure, just you're you're really not going to ever use it. We don't even train to the standard anymore. Do you remember what the rating is on the hook? Uh, I believe it's uh, 10,000. 
um, 10 or 20. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's one of those two numbers. I think it's 20 if it's one hook and 10 if it's two, I believe, or something like that. All right, and fuel tanks, can you put um, like internal, can you roll on internal bladders and um, plumb them into yeah. the fuel? Yeah, there's two uh, auxiliary hard uh, tanks, ox tanks that can be loaded in the back for doing the long range deployment type scenario. Um, so they're, you know, they're kind of, don't, again, don't use it very often because they're kind of a pain to roll on and plumb into the system and everything. But that was the whole purpose of giving it a, uh, 2100 nautical mile self-deploy capability. And it was to be able to do that. And it's the only way you could do it. All our other fuel tanks are, there's one in each sponson on each side. Uh, then there's on the right aft sponson, there's a, a fuel tank back there. And then we have uh, fuel tanks in each wing as well. So it gives you about 13,000 pounds totally, which is that. And uh, um, you know, I can't remember exactly what the ranges are with 13,000 pounds. It gives you over three hours. You burn about 3,300 pounds an hour. So you get about three hours of uh, endurance, three and a half. Uh, it just depends on what altitude you're using and things of that nature. So that's three and a half just on internals, just your, your standard fuel load? Yeah. We didn't actually exactly. mention it. How, how fast do you actually cruise at and what's the top speed? Top speed is 280 knots, and that's a limitation of the of the software, essentially, in the system. Um, we normally cruise anywhere from about 210 to 240 uh, knots cast. And so, you know, you're talking cruise uh, uh, true airspeed or, excuse me, ground speeds. Of, uh, you know, I've seen 300 plus knots of ground speed, especially with good tailwinds and depending on what altitude you're flying at. Um, so it's pretty quick. We actually have, they've actually given us some engine power through the years. And so, we, you know, we've been able to do 240, 250 with really hardly any, any problems. It's fairly standard to go cross country at 240 knots. And you got like a standard oxygen kit on board? Like you, you know, you're flying at pressurized heights or what's the, uh, actually it wouldn't be pressurized, would it? No, it's not. And that's again, if there's one uh, drawback, I think for the entire design is that it's not pressurized. Uh, because when we get above for the Air Force, 10,000 feet, it's supposed to be an oxygen for the crew. Uh, we have what's called an OBIG Zobog system, very similar to what Navy, Navy, all Navy aircraft do. Because uh, what I've heard is that it's, you know, it's kind of not a good thing to have pressurized oxygen uh, soaring the ships. So it's a system that actually takes ambient air uh, and converts, takes uh, the nitrogen out of the air, and and it gives you oxygen. Um, so it has, uh, in the, in the, you know, all four of us can be on oxygen at one time. Um, the only problem is if we're taking passengers, we have an external system that you actually roll onto the aircraft. It's essentially like pressurized air that allows them to breathe. Um, so because like for us, above 13,000, everybody in the aircraft has to have oxygen on board. The aircraft's rated up to 25,000, and it's, it's you know, it's, it actually flies pretty well up in the teens and higher teens. It flies just like a, uh, you know, turboprop airplane. For the most part, so that's the limitation. Is you know, if you had to be an oxygen up there, that's kind of it's kind of a pain. Uh, you know, flying on the hose for three hours or four hours uh, is is not fun. So uh, that's that's a kind of a downfall of having that capability. Is that if it was pressurized, it'd be a heck of a lot. It would be a lot, uh, a nicer ride for everybody, I think. And what about emergencies? And I don't know if you want to talk about the development, but uh, you know, early on there was this kind of uh, stigma about uh, Vortex Ring, and that you know, from again, you know, third party and without being involved, that sounded like that was an initial cause for some of the the crashes. Uh, can you talk about the that sort of sort of things? Well, yeah, you know, Vortex Ring has been uh, the big talked about 
issue with, with the Osprey, and that was the crash out at Moana in Arizona um, that was attributed to Vortex Ring. Um, you know, my personal opinions are I'm not, I'm not totally convinced uh, now this far, far down the road, uh, essentially 14, 15 years now, almost 15 years since that crash occurred. I think we've learned more about the aerodynamics of, of the aircraft, that there might have been some other things at play there. Um, I'm not an aeronautical engineer, but I, I do have some my own personal kind of theories and stuff what really might have happened that night, and it wasn't necessarily Vortex Ring. It was attributed to Vortex Ring. Uh, they went out, did uh, what they call high-rated descent tests out of Pax River, the test team. And what the ironic part of it was, that it actually increased the, the performance envelope of the aircraft. It actually didn't decrease it, which was unique. Um, so even though Vortex Ring got, got the big you know, big stamp of death to the aircraft, it uh, really showed that it got into Vortex Ring at much higher rates of descent than they actually thought initially. Um, the problem is that, yes, it does do an, if it does get into it, it does an asymmetrical roll. So if one, if one prop rotor gets into Vortex Ring before the other one, then obviously it loses lift on one side and it'll, it'll roll. And uh, listening to what the test pilots that uh, I talked with years ago, it took about 5,000 feet to, to recover the aircraft as it rolled over, it snapped right over, and they recovered it. But um, it definitely got their attention. But it didn't get into it till I believe, somewhere, you know, 2,000 plus uh, feet per minute rate of descent. So we, from that, they limited, you know, they put a, a limitation uh, in the software system that if our rate of descent at certain cell angles, when you're getting up in the high 80s, almost pure vertical, uh, it has a, well, your VVI will drop and it has a little red line. It'll actually tell you, come over a bitch and Betty type of thing, tell you sink rate, sink rate um, at 800 feet per minute. Uh, but the 800 feet was honestly, I believe, just purely a, a stamp. There's nothing that really says that 800 feet per minute you're going to be in a vortex ring state. So it's, uh, it was something put into the aircraft, uh, basically a warning system put into the aircraft that was uh, essentially kind of mandated to have done. So that's where it, why it's there. But, uh, you know, since then, there has not been one vortex ring encounter that I know of that I've ever heard of. And it was only you know, that one incident was Vortex Ring. There was an incident right after that, an accident out of uh, in North Carolina. That was a software glitch. It was literally one line of code within the millions of code in the system. Um, and it, it happened to be in a situation where they had a, a, a hydraulic issue. And uh, what they were trying to do, which was a procedure to fix it at the time because of that was causing the aircraft to slow down. The prop loaders not to act correctly, and they essentially kind of stalled it. And uh, that was the uh, that was the, the accident that caused kind of the halt for a couple of years uh, because both of those accidents occurred in the year 2000. So then the aircraft, you know, production and everything was halted for several years before it came back to uh, where the decision was made to continue after they did a bunch of tests and everything else. Hope that's not too long for you. No, that's it's you know trying to get the background and because again all you hear is those sort of rumors that float around. You don't get often get to hear much from the source, but. Um, the, sure. the next thing I was going to ask about, you know, how is it actually, you know, glide or auto rotate? And again, you know, it's a, it's a big machine with two engines. You're not going to be practicing <laughs> right. autos all over the place. But yeah, does, is it a brick? Or, you know, and is there a crossover point between where you would glide it in like an airplane and, and when you, you know, transition to an auto rotate? How, how does that work for it? Yeah, it's, you know, it, you know technically, uh, if you're an aerodynamicist, yes, it auto rotates. It does enter auto rotational flight. Um, but 
it's a very high rate of descent and it's a very uh, low inertia rotor system. So you, you don't have a lot of energy in the rotor system when you go to flare. Um, that's the big, you know, one of the big problems. It'll, it'll, you know, obviously we've never auto-rotated it, uh, the actual aircraft. It's everything's done in the simulator. So everything's based upon the mass models and that that they, they use for it. And, you know, it, yeah, it auto-rotates. It, it kind of enters the glide portion pretty you know, well. Yeah, you're, you're descending at 4,500, 5,000 feet per minute. Um, but the problem comes when you try to flare and land the aircraft at the bottom. Um, unfortunately, the simulator, I don't think, does a real good job of, of that final portion. Um, but you, you have very little. As soon as you start to flare, you have a rotor RPM builds up, but it goes away very quickly as well. So could you... Could it possibly auto-rotate and, and, and uh, be recovered, you know, and actually safely? It's hard to say because nobody's ever done it. And like I said, the sim doesn't give you a great idea. I think it'd be very hard, very difficult to do. And it would be, uh, you know, luck of, the, luck of the draw, luck of the day for the pilots. But um, it, uh, so, yeah, so you, if you're above 60 nacelle, that's kind of where you're in to the danger zone. But if you were to lose two engines above 60 nacelle, like I said, you were, you were, flying around in helicopter mode and for some reason both engines quit uh it would be it, it, i wouldn't say it'd be catastrophic but it would be definitely a kind of like very similar to doing you know hv chart type of auto rotation in other words it's very much up to pilot skill and, and pilot reaction time so below sticking the cell our plan is to glide the aircraft in and, and crash land it essentially you know like a like a airplane would if an airplane lost two engines both its engines so same kind of concept, you enter glide ratio, it's about 2,500 feet per minute. Um, you'd come to the bottom and, and flare it, and the prop loaders are designed to broom straw and break out and fracture away from the cabin. Um, and they've actually seen that occur on some of the incidents, that, uh, some of the accidents that have happened. Um, they they work as advertised, which is nice. Um, and, is it a fairly, um, fairly high glide speed as far as airspeed? Because the wings don't... We uh, uh, so. the procedure is about 170 knots. So you're supposed to, you know, depending on what your altitude is, but 170 knots is the airspeed we're looking for. So you're, you would you would uh, start your glide at 170 knots, and again, that's about 2,500 feet per minute rate of descent, and uh, you you know get to the bottom, and from there it's kind of a you know, flare and a, and a try to you know put your put the belly of the aircraft down. Again, the simulator doesn't do a great job of simulating it because it, the simulators are designed to uh, you know, anytime you hit the prop loader on the ground, it's going to red screen you. So it's kind of hard to tell you, you know, when you do the procedure in the sim, you actually can flare it and, you know, flare it just like you were landing an airplane. It seems like it would be a very shallow rate of descent. So I, I think it's a very survivable maneuver as long as the conditions were, you know, as long as you entered it correctly and everything else, it seems pretty, that's kind of your only hope. But, you know, once again, we're, we fly in airplane mode, I'd say, 85, 90% of their flight profile is in airplane mode. And the chances of both engines failing are so incredibly slim. I mean, yes, it does happen, but, uh, you know, because of all the redundant systems and everything else, unless you, about the only thing I think we could really cause it would be sort of a fuel starvation or a fuel contamination issue, because really there's nothing else that connects the engines that would cause uh, both engines to quit. Um, obviously, yes, you could, you know, enemy action, but that's a whole other another kind of issue and topic. Um, but yeah, that's basically the, the two methods that you would, uh, you'd be have to, if you'd have to put the aircraft down. Okay. If we finish up with, um, the training side of things, is it, uh, are they taking exclusively helicopter pilots across or is there uh, fixed wing guys coming across? What's the mix 
of the uh, the training intake. It's you know it's a little different because of the the between the Marines and the Air Force were a little different because what the Marines do is they tend to transition a complete squadron from one aircraft to the other. So they've taken you know they'll take an H forty six squadron or where they were and there's none left anymore. But they would take the entire H forty six squadron, bring them down, you know take take the aircraft, you know, remove the forty sixes, take the aircraft down, and they would train the entire squadron up. So they were all you know helicopter background guys. Whereas we're, we were a little different initially, we kind of had a mix of fixed wing and helicopter. And then when the uh, H-53 was retired, though, we got a, a huge influx of helicopter guys because there was obviously a pool of people out there that needed to go to another aircraft. So we got a lot of those folks. Now, honestly, a uh, majority of folks that are coming through, I think it's, it's, it's quite a mix still, uh, but a lot of them are right out of flight school. So they're, they're folks that are coming right from uh, either, you know, T6 training or T37s. Uh, and they're not, you know, I don't even believe anymore they're going to, they were getting a, going to an H1 training course for a couple of months and then going to the initial V22 school. Now I believe they're going straight through uh, the initial flight training, initial uh, fixed wing training. And instead of the way the Air Force does it, you either branch like bombers or cargo or fighters. Well, now they're branching straight V22 right after that. So they'll get, you know, maybe, probably about 200 hours in a, say, a T-6 Texan, and then straight from there goes straight to a B-22 school. In the Air Force, we're switching it a little bit, but traditionally we've gone to uh, New River, uh, North Carolina, and done the first initial, we call it contact remote stuff with the Marines. So the Marines, we actually paid the Marines and part of the bill to uh, use MV-22s in their, their schoolhouse to teach the basic contact and instrument phase. And then they come out to here in Albuquerque, Kirtland Air Force Base, and do the tactical flying out here. So they would start out here uh, doing some basic contact remote, getting used to the difference in the aircraft. And then they go straight into day tack, then night tack, and uh, be done. So it's about a nine-month course for us. Well, that'd be, yeah, again, amazing. <laughs> Going straight through on that as a, as a brand-new pilot would be awesome. Uh, Mike, what's your yeah. involvement now? Are you doing, you're doing maintenance test flying for them, or you? Um, yeah. how's it work? Yeah, I'm uh, one of the lucky few that is civilian that gets to fly the V-22 still. Uh, I retired in 2010. I spent uh, five years flying the V-22 active duty. It was all out here at, uh, at the schoolhouse. I was I was one of the initial instructors, taught the initial students, and uh, you know we brought the first aircraft online in 2006. And then um, when I retired, uh, did a couple jobs civilian side, and then um, got lucky enough to get this uh, part, get this job. So we do what's called functional check flights. So when the aircraft, um, which is probably pretty similar to everywhere else, I guess, but, uh, you know, when it comes out of maintenance, there's obviously certain checks that need that curve before it becomes operational again. And uh, so that's what, yeah, that's what we do. Uh, we're a pretty small group of guys. And we, that's where we do either do ground runs or, you know, flights and flight ops checks or FCF test profiles to ensure that uh, the maintenance stuff was done correctly and the aircraft is, you know, capable of doing its mission again. All right, Mike, let's uh, finish up there. I don't know if there's any uh, extra things we didn't cover that you'd, you'd want to point out or uh, any good stories, but um, yeah, look, mm-hmm. uh, look on from the outside. It looks like an amazing machine and uh, it'd be, yeah, be, uh, love, to get, love to get my hands on it, but I don't, don't see that happening. Yeah, it's a, it's a fun aircraft. You know, the, the it's unique in a lot of ways for, for uh, what I'm used to because it's very heavily driven. The training program is very heavily simulator driven. It's about 75 to 80% simulator, 
Um, so actually to use the aircraft and actually flying the aircraft is, is only about 25% of the entire training syllabus. Um, we have a simulator at every base that the aircraft is based at. So like you don't even, you don't even conduct emergency procedure sorties in the aircraft. They're all done in the simulator because we can do things in the sim that you can't do in the aircraft, obviously. Um, so, if, you know, that's kind of a unique concept compared to what, you know, the, the in the past with Air Force training or with military training. Um, the simulators are very, you know, essentially what we call level D simulators. So they're the same standards as level D simulators in the FAA where they train airline pilots and that. Uh, very, very graphically based. We can do full mission profiles in the sims so they can, um, uh, you know, you can get databases that are extremely accurate from anywhere in the world and actually rehearse missions in the simulators themselves. And you actually do about 50% of your recurrency training in the simulator too. So, uh, you know, definitely a different concept than, than the past and flying, whereas you're doing, you're doing about half of all your training in the simulators and then you're doing the other half in the aircraft. And that helps out because of uh, just, you know, you know, the cost of the aircraft and what it costs to operate. Um, it, uh, it's air refuelable. This is one thing too. So we air refuel with, uh, right now with MC-130 tankers that are also indigenous to Air Force Special Operations Command. So it's a probe and drogue system and, uh, you know, fairly simple. It's fairly similar to the way we used to refuel with uh, helicopters and still do. It's just a little different control movements, obviously. Um, so you can refuel. So that makes it basically deployable anywhere and for up to the crew's, you know, exhaustion of the crew, essentially. So it can go as far as it needs to go at that point. It, um, I'm trying to think of one other thing that we were talking about or I was thinking of, but, um, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not the, the greatest example of tilt rotor technology. What it's done for me is it really convinced me that the concept of tilt rotor is sound. It works. Uh, and it's, it works fairly eff efficiently and effectively. The V-22 itself isn't the greatest example because it's been, it was designed to meet the Marine Corps mission and meet the, the, it had to fit on board their, their, uh, LHDs and their platforms and their ships. So it's, it's kind of aerodynamically challenged because of that, because it's a, a little smaller than it really probably should be in certain areas. So, it, you know, it has some aerodynamic penalties there. It's kind of a draggy, a draggy aircraft, you know, it's got a lot of stuff kind of sticking off of it. It's got a, you know, it doesn't have a pointy spinner, things of that nature. And all those are, reasons because of the, of the space it had to fit and you mentioned earlier as you talked to the fold-up system everything folds up between the two vertical tails um and so because it, it has to fit that certain box size to be able to be stowed below deck and again that, that kind of creates uh when you're building air you're not they basically didn't couldn't build the aircraft to be as efficient as it could because it had to fit a certain box size if that makes sense yeah, I mean, so, there's, you know, there's big weight, weight penalties and things like that too, just trying to uh, yep. cater for that. Yep, exactly. So that kind of, you know, that kind of hurts it a little bit. We Early on for the Air Force stuff, you know, because obviously we don't really use the fold system and that all that often. You know, we always used to joke that we wish we had a, a V-23 designed with the, you know, more Air Force mission in mind that will allow us to go a little faster, a little farther, a little more efficient, you know. But uh, it's a it's a great demonstration of what tilt rotor does and can do and it's actually gotten better than even when i started flying it just because they you know the bell boeing engineers and stuff now have a lot of data that they kind of you know give a little more engine power here they 
tweak the software here and there to get a better flying qualities and capabilities. Um, and it's, uh, it's gotten a lot, it's gotten better actually than, uh, than 2005, 2006 when I first started flying it. So it's, um, it's, it's pretty impressive. Like I said, it's not, you know, it's not, it's not gonna, some people might be loud. Some people won't. I think the acceleration and ability to fly faster is huge. I never realized how much difference there is. You know, you don't, you don't think about it until you, when you see that you can do a mission in 30 minutes, it would take traditional helicopters over an hour to do, uh, you know, that, what that means for that, if you're a special forces team in enemy country and you're under fire, um, and you, you know, you can wait an hour and 15 minutes for a helicopter to arrive to get you out of there, or you can get there in a B-22 in 30 minutes. That's huge. Um, the aircraft's expensive, but I always say that how much do you, how much would that guy on the ground pay at that moment when he's getting shot at by the enemy? Uh, if he wants to wait another 40 minutes for a helicopter or a V-22 will be there, you know, 30, I, I think he would probably, if he had the money, he, he'd put as much of that money down as, as, uh, as he had, you know. So that's, that's what it brings to the battlefield is speed. Um, and it's like I said earlier and started off with, it's not the only thing it really brings, but that speed is huge. It's absolutely huge. And being able to get up in the teens and 20,000 feet to get above the small arms threat, to be able to ingress the battlefield at high altitude, uh, where it's fairly quiet too. You, you can't even really hear it when it's at those uh, altitudes. It's a very quiet aircraft. And, you know, to only descend at the last moment when you need to go into an LZ, you know, that's a whole change in mission concept from what we used to think in the helicopter world. So it's, that, those are the things that change the tactics and the way we employ than, than most of those, those of us that came from the helicopter world, purely helicopter world, you know, we used to, we kind of had to retweak our tactics and procedures because of these capabilities, which is exactly what you want with a new aircraft. Yeah, it's definitely pushing its boundaries on some uh, civil designs and, uh, you know, even quad uh, copter type things coming out too. So it'd be interesting to see where it right. goes in the next uh, sort of five, 10 years. Yeah, it'll be nice to see the 609 hit the streets finally. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's very similar to the V-22 and how it, everything's in the cell. I, I, you know, they've, they've made some advancements though. It's, it's kind of a, I would say a fourth generation tilt rotor. So it's a little bit different in flying qualities. Uh, I, I, you know, I can't wait for it to hit the street. I think it's going to be pretty expensive aircraft to buy. If that's, that's maybe its biggest limitation is just the purchase price is going to be pretty high. So it's going to limit who can buy it, but I think it'll show, it'll show some unique capabilities as well. And in the civilian world, which would be interesting. And, you know, the way I look at the whole concept is B-22 hopefully got the military and and the DOD, not only U.S. DOD, but other other uh, countries thinking that, wow, you know, again, total works. This is a neat concept. How do we make it cheaper? How do we make it better? How do we employ it better? So, you know, hopefully that continues and that, that thought process continues. Um, and then the next concept, same thing with 609, you know, hopefully it opens people's eyes a little bit and, and again, spurs off more development of tilt rotor technology. And then you got the concept now, the V280 Valor, which uh, Bell is pushing uh, towards the Army to replace their H60 fleet down the future. What they've done there is they, they basically put the engine horizontal, so the engine stays horizontal, but the prop rotor still tilts, um, and which is a great, great, it directly comes from B-22 experience because we've had a lot of issues with uh, engine uh, ingestion of uh, especially sand and dirt. And it's limited the life cycle of the engines quite a lot more than they expected. So keeping them horizontal uh, does a lot. It's not just the engine and dirt, but you know oil, all those things. You know, 
moving that engine up and down vertical or horizontal a lot has caused some issues with oil seeping through seals and this, that, and the other. And um, not major, but enough to say, hey, why don't we just design it to where it's horizontal? And I think that's going to maintenance-wise and capability rate-wise, I think it's going to have a huge impact. And um, being able to build the aircraft to where it doesn't need to fold up. So I, I think that I think the 280, once it flies, is going to be pretty spectacular, uh, just because of they've learned some big lessons from B22, which is going to be nice. Fantastic. All right, we might wrap it up there. And, and Mike, look, thanks so much okay. for for sharing, uh, yeah, all, all that information and then your experience. You bet. Thank you very much. That's it for this week. Next episode, we'll be talking to pilot and author Robert Mills about his book, Black Death 23, and about flying Kiowas in Iraq. In the pipeline, I've got interviews with Gentex Helmets, an aviation vision expert, and one also about gyrocopters. If you can hook me up with anyone that you think would be, make it you know, a great interviewee, uh, please do let me know over via uh, feedback at rotarywingshow.com. A quick plug too, if you haven't been over to the website recently, to head across to the website and grab a copy of the list of the top 10 helicopter books as voted by show listeners. Thanks very much. You've been listening to the Rotary Wing Show. I've been your host again, Mick Cullen. Catch you next time.